Welcome to Frontier 3, presented by PatSnap. In this 20-episode podcast series, we'll be unpacking the innovation ecosystem of Web3. From tokenized physical goods to the digital assets and smart contracts that will build the metaverse, Web3 is one of the biggest technological and socioeconomic paradigm shifts in history. Join PatSnap's co-founder, Ray Chohan, for a fascinating deep dive into how Web3 will fundamentally change how we live, work, and play. Welcome to Frontier 3. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Episode 5 of Frontier 3, presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, our host, Ray Chohan, sits down with Anara Nazarova. Inara is a Turkmen-American marketer and entrepreneur building a new generation of digital products in media and technology. Coming into tech with a background in fashion and performing arts, she always looks for ways to create a sense of wonder. For the last seven years, she has launched and scaled high-growth startups focused on building tools that empower creators to do what they do best, make things. No matter what she does, whether it's growing a top-rated coding boot camp or Europe's leading tech festival, Anara always aims for world-class quality in her work and the people she works with. She is on a mission to inspire Web3 creative technologies that will allow people to express themselves in the metaverse. We hope you enjoy today's episode with Anara Nazarova. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by PatSnap. Learn how to unlock your limitless innovation potential with connected innovation intelligence. CII is an AI-powered technology that comes through millions of disparate data points, segments them by industry and relevance, and weaves the insights together to create a meaningful narrative. The result? A holistic 360-degree market view where you can easily spot risks, identify opportunities, and accelerate the pace of innovation. We created the definitive guide to connected innovation intelligence to give you an in-depth understanding of how CII can help your business innovate better. If you want to grab a copy of this, head over to patsnap.com or click the link in the description of this podcast to get it today. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Anara, welcome to Frontier 3. Awesome to have you on this week. I know we've been going back and forth uh, on LinkedIn to kind of agree a date because I know you're really busy and traveling all around Europe and I think currently in Germany, so so welcome. Anara, would love to kick off with your background story. Um, Your LinkedIn profile really caught our imagination. So would love to hear your journey to where you are now with Armour and kind of starting that organization, but also how you were touched by Web3 because I find everyone's got their own story on how they end up in this wonderful world of Web3, blockchain, NFT. So it'd be great just to get your background story and, and your journey so far. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be able to share some ideas and get to talk with you about this. My journey into Web3, I think like most people, it has been very unconventional. So I, I spent 10 years as a performer learning how to tell stories and connect with audiences. So for me, visual communication and aesthetics have always been incredibly important. And now my goal is to help uh, the fashion industry also embrace the actual limitless potential of immersive technology so that more and more people can express themselves in the metaverse and in different virtual spaces. So today I run a community called Digital Fashion and Art Club on Clubhouse and also bringing to life 
a platform called Armoire. And uh, my interest has always been about bringing fabrics and textures to life. So this platform allows fans to incubate digital art alongside their favorite artists. And Web3, I think, is a fundamental shift in how we're going to be thinking, how we're going to be building businesses in the future. So very excited to dive into the implications of, of this time. So, so you're from an arts background. What year do you, did you get touched by Web3 where you were kind of excited about the fundamental technology as a, as a new primitive what was that specific story? Because I find every practitioner, entrepreneur, developer, investor in this space has their own little nuance on how they were bitten by the bug of Web3. Was there something in specific which really kind of made you make that career shift into this space? Oh, yeah. For me, it was definitely uh, one particular day. I attended a large fashion tech conference in New York in April of 2019. And there was uh, lots of different companies representing fashion brands, uh, a lot of them that are really well recognized. And amidst all of those brands, there was one company called Luxo that was presenting an idea behind a creative economy and how Web3 crypto is going to actually change the way that fashion um, exists within the next its future iterations of how those future brands are going to transform. And I remember looking back at the audience and seeing people's furrowed brows, just like utterly confused looks of just not understanding what this tech company was even talking about. And I remember for me, that was a moment of validation that there is a shift underway and there's a big gap between where we're heading and what people are currently able to grasp. So I got really interested in Web3 at that point. And fast forward 12 months, I mean, April 2020, it was a completely different time. Uh, this is when virtual environments became incredibly relevant for every single brand, including fashion. So the conversation went from something that's possible to something that was very necessary. So my journey may have started at the time where nobody was paying attention to Web3, but very quickly it became uh, a topic of conversation. How would you describe Web3 in your words? Because that's one thing we want to get. Everyone's got a slightly nuanced definition, but what would be your definition of what is Web3 and where it's heading? Yeah, I mean, if we try to encapsulate what Web3 is all about, it's really the next iteration of the internet. And I think you cannot talk about Web3 without mentioning NFTs. And I know that is the word that keeps being repeated over and over again, but there's a reason why it's such a fundamental component of what's happening. So if you dumb down NFTs as a concept, I think of it as a file type, the same way how you think of a JPEG, MP3, MP4 file. We Right now, we no longer talk about how MP4s are going to change the world because we have the example of YouTube showing us the power that video actually has to completely transform and reinvent communication. So NFTs as a structure also has the same power to create and also completely reinvent industries. The technology went from completely unheard of to utterly overhyped to now slowly becoming the standard of ownership of all digital goods. And I truly believe that the same way how you don't think about typing HTTP whenever you're browsing a website, NFT's primary function is going to fade into the background and all of the experiences that's able to facilitate within Web3 environments is going to come to the foreground. So Web3 is going to be a new connection point between in real life and digital experiences. Some, some of them will be hybrid, some of them will be digital only, but instead of us just being able to observe something, we'll be able to step into experiences and have continuous relationship with brands as well. Yeah, this concept that you describe. I've tried, especially during the festive season where we are getting a chance to see family, friends that we've not seen for a while. And I'm getting this question quite a bit. Oh, Ray, have you heard of this NFT thing? I've seen some stuff online. 
I'm guessing you get those questions all the time. People overall still completely don't get it. I think they have a, a fringe understanding. But we've seen already in the last two, three weeks, Adidas make an interesting move with the Pope protocol where it's a, a proof of appearance, whatever that means. It's still kind of very early stage. And in particularly, Nike, literally in the last 24 hours, uh, announcing their acquisition of, uh, I think it's RTFKT, which is a seems like an NFT forging platform. But in, in a layman form factor, let's look at 2022 now. What do you think where digital fashion will go next year? Yeah, so if I had to make a prediction of where we're going to be heading is we would we will want to go beyond just being able to buy and exchange NFTs. So if we think of the concept of composable assets, that means it's an asset that can be impacted by the customer. So a composable aspect of the NFT will allow the designer to be a co-creator of the product with their fan. Right now, if we look at the way products are currently built, it is very much a dictatorial relationship where the brand creates a design, sells a design, and essentially dictates the trends of the future. So now the customer is expecting to be included in that process. So if we look at the authentication mechanism of NFTs, it will allow fans to invest in, in the creators of the assets and also in the asset itself that hopefully over time are able is able to appreciate and become an asset. This is a fundamental change to how assets are being created because anybody from any part of the world is now able to participate in that process. So to me, the best part about fashion NFTs is that you don't have to live in the fashion capital around the world to be able to participate in an exchange. So if we zoom out for a second, in this new paradigm where the designer is the facilitator and the fan is a co-creator of an asset, the question I ask is, what can these fashion NFTs then give us access to? And to me, it's all about customization, being able to have an asset mirror and reflect who you are, the interests that you currently have, and have that asset mean something to you personally. So over time, it can become a nostalgic memorabilia. It can be something that you're able to pass on generationally. It may be something that allows you to be part uh, as a membership token, part of a community. And that's really what brands are. They're just helms of affiliations to a specific aesthetic, to a specific train of thought. And... uh, This redesign of the relationship will fundamentally also change the types of products that are being created. So the acquisition, as you mentioned, uh, of Artifact by Nike is a huge validation point for the digital fashion industry because this is uh, a legendary brand, essentially saying that this is a very relevant path for them as a business to be able to explore virtual presence and being also present with their customer as they venture out into this new digital landscape. And looking at Artifact, that bridge made sense to me, Nora, mm. because it looks like you have your digital form factor, which is kind of your online swag, your online signaling, right? Because that's what fashion is, sometimes is an expression or a signal. But also, what, when I go on their website, you then get the physical item built for you and then delivered to your door in, I think it says, 8 to 12 weeks on the website at the moment. So that one felt more natural to me as, as a Web2 dude, right? I'm like, great, I get kind of the online expression of the good, but then also I get the physical good, which I can wear on a Friday night and feel really cool and hopefully get some reactions from my friends. So mm-hmm. so that makes sense. So you think that's phase one where it isn't going to be pure digital. The big brands will go like digital form factor, but then it also is backed up by the physical good. Do you think that's kind of stage one rather than pure digital off the bat, which some people don't really get at the moment? I think it all comes down to generational understanding and the desire that the customer has for the object. So 
if you are somebody who really appreciates physical assets and physical items, you will definitely be more attracted to a hybrid model. So I think this type of reinforcement of a virtual object in its physical form is going to be very important for some customers. Not everybody, but some. There is a really interesting video of Keanu Reeves talking about the new rendition of The Matrix and how he was present at a dinner where there was a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, and a 17-year-old kid. And he asked them, Do, if you know about The Matrix, so they said no. So he kind of told them about the plot, about this guy who's learned that he's not in the real world, that there's another real world, and he's trying to kind of make peace between what is real and what's not. And the teenager basically said, well, why? Why, why is he struggling with that? Because it doesn't really matter to me if something is real or not. For them, the understanding of what an object is, is very blended. So a virtual asset means to them probably as much as a physical asset because there is a lot of social meaning imbued into it. So generationally, I think younger consumers will really be attracted to virtual assets without the need for them to be reinforced as a physical object. But for somebody who is really used to the brick and mortar experience, who wants to hold the actual good in their hands or being able to wear a shoe then uh, for them, a hybrid experience will be more important. So would you say purchasing power, because I'm, I'm trying to think of this from a big brand perspective, is now sitting with probably that younger generation who might be still living at home or early 20s who don't need the, the brick and mortar form factor. They're all in and like Keanu Reeves dinner, they completely get that that virtual world, that digital form factor. Where do you think we are on that scale? Is it kind of we're 80% there or I'm sounding really old fashioned here for me. I want the backed physical item. <laughs> so I'm probably from more from that generation. So I'm still trying to, I do a similar survey as well. Where do you think we are on the radar on, on that being a huge opportunity in the marketplace? Yeah. Well, I mean, we can look at what's currently happening also in terms of the adoption of these metaverses. So Right now, because of 2020 and the pandemic, there was a lot of industries that were forced to actually reform and had heavily accelerated the popularity of virtual social spaces. So this trend is already being embraced by kids within the age group that we're talking about, somewhere between ages 13 and up. They are the future consumers, and they right now are already spending a significant amount of time in Roblox, Animal Crossing, and more than they do on Facebook, YouTube, and Netflix combined. So when we look at the segment of Gen Zs and young millennials, they are the very first digital native generation. I believe if we look at the global footprint of how many individuals there are, it's about 3.5 billion people. They hold or will continue to hold about 55% of the total purchasing power. So when we're looking at the percentage that they make up, 25 5 billion of them, of the 3.5 billion, already identify as gamers. So they have some type of interaction or relationship with virtual environments pretty frequently or several times throughout the day. And the searches for also looking for products that are either fully digital or are uh, sustainable in terms of not subscribing to the wasteful aspect of something like fast fashion is also increasing. So this new consumer segment really cares about self-expression. They want to see democratic and sustainable ways of products. And this is really a nightmare request for fulfillment services who are trying to figure out how are they going to actually meet this demand. So when we look at digitization, it really is the answer to, to this demand. They're able to connect with this consumer in the ways that they understand without actually contributing to the things that they are they're very much opposed to, which is wastefulness. You raise a fascinating point there, especially with all the challenges around the supply chain at the moment, Anara. Mm. I'm guessing this opportunity for a lot of the, the big box brands, it's potentially a knight in shining armor to 
engage and excite the end customer due to the brick and mortar world being so challenged and the supply chain mm-hmm. being challenged. Are you seeing now this mass migration from big box names being really aggressive with an, an NFT play for next year? I think everybody should at least begin experimenting and understanding what the NFTs mean specifically for their business. Like if we look at the reality of everything, as natural resources continue to reduce in abundance and raw materials rise in cost, I think physical objects will transition to serve a more utilitarian function while virtual assets will become more outlets for self-expression. So this transformation may be led by younger generations, but I think it's very obvious that digitization can, as it becomes more increasingly prevalent and is continuing to grow year over year. Most industries that still primarily focus on producing physical items will have to consider a digital strategy. So NFTs are just, like you mentioned, like I mentioned at the beginning, they're just a file type. It's a a way of being able to contextualize meaning and an experience that your particular segment of the audience will want to potentially experience. So you can deliver an experience that may not land with anybody and you'll be able to still learn from that why was there such low engagement maybe you should partner with somebody else and you should be more encouraged to become collaborative as a brand so you'll see where the opportunities are and how you can actually resonate with the digital first customer wow this is crazy Anara, what you're talking about this has got my head spinning now because if you look at the classic web 2 world right there was a big movement around growth started in consumer first with obviously Facebook, Instagram, but it's huge in my world, B2B. So when I mean kind of product-led growth software businesses, it might be a Dropbox, an Airtable, uh, an Atlassian, who very, very much use this kind of growth A-B test style to figure out a compelling product market fit. So in a way, this new primitive of nfts is potentially going to unlock a huge surface area for experimentation for big brands so are you seeing some of the big players or mid-sized players trying to recruit people now who are from that world of growth who are great at a b testing and and figuring out a compelling product market fit are you seeing a, a lot of folks moving into that space I think it's very important to look at the talent pool of ex-FANG companies. Like if you look at somebody for coming from ex-growth at Facebook, Uber, Amazon, Apple, I think they all very deeply understand the framework that Web2 has allowed us to, to utilize to build businesses. But I think we're fundamentally trying to move away from that. So some of the brighter ideas uh, will be probably led by people outside of those frameworks. I think you'll definitely need to couple uh, the wisdom and understanding of somebody who's built a company at scale, but allowing fresh talent and fresh ideas to shape up the space, I think, is what's going to create breakthrough ideas because thinking outside the box <laughs> becomes harder and harder when you become really good at something. So fundamentally, the main business model right now of the internet is advertising. And uh, the way that content has been distributed, we've, put, we've placed thousands of images Uh, and videos and content online that has been primarily monetized by advertising. So the business model people are trying to experiment with now is direct peer-to-peer exchanges. So if you have an asset that is valuable and you're trying to then uh, sell it directly to your audience, you get to keep all of the profits as well as future royalties. And that is something that fundamentally contradicts the advertising model. So if somebody is very proficient in setting up ads, their skills might not be as relevant within this space. Yeah, so I think this is interesting because I, I, there's a great investor called Chris Dixon from 
of course. Uh, AZ sixteen. Yeah, I mean, and, and I love the way he talks about a lot of things start off sadly in a skeuomorphic form factor, where it's a Web two concept in a Web two Web three form factor, and, and he thinks the big wins are not going to be there. It's going to be like you say, the folks who are native to this space and get it from its first principles. So is there anything like crazy you're seeing right now where you're like, wow, this is going to be huge. And this native approach to um, peer-to-peer or a monetization model or a value exchange model is catching your imagination. Is there anything you can kind of tease our audience with on on things to look out for in terms of pure native design and, and, and pure unique composability? Is there anything which has caught your imagination? I mean, I have a very specific problem that I've had with my experience when I download an app. Whenever you are being given an experience, a lot of the times the very first screen that you face is the one that asks you to sign up and give you details, your name, your email, your number, your phone number, before you even get to actually experience the app. So I would love to see more experiences completely bypass the data mining, harvesting part of the onboarding experience and giving you the chance to taste the experience first. So if you were to play a game instantly, enjoy it, start to kind of, you know, navigate the space and then get interested in it. And after that point, give your information, then not only will you probably have a much more um, engaged data set of users who are already really very much enjoying your app and want to continue engaging with you versus somebody who had to create a profile before even getting a chance to uh, to go through your experience. And one thing that I personally believe in is the future of composable assets, the ones that can hold metadata and information that can react to other assets that can essentially bring virtual objects to life and like giving them a lifelike quality. So instead of the internet being very uh, one-to-one exchange where you're getting an asset and it continues to stay the same, what happens when an asset starts to mature and age and and, uh, interact with others? What happens if you hold on to the asset for an X amount of time? Can it appreciate even more? So giving your assets an ability to to respond to stimulus, I think, is a very interesting path for where NFTs can take us. Holy shit, you now open up a whole new rabbit hole with that. Because if you think about it, I could have my own inventory in my wallet, right? And certain parts of my inventory has its own life force. It then interacts with other parts of Web3 while I sleep and accrues a certain amount of value or evolves. And that's in the very native design of that individual asset. Is Is that where you're heading down, where you've got assets which are kind of morphing and evolving while you sleep? I mean, I think that will apply to assets as well as to a virtual version of you. I think at some point you will be able to go to sleep and your virtual avatar will be able to go to work um, in many different countries at the same time. I think being able to give like the programmable nature of assets applies to, of course, objects as well as people. And I think the 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 people aspect will probably take a little bit longer to develop because it is a, a bit more of a complicated approach to developing an asset that can accurately represent you and who you are. But I really like to scale down uh, this particular idea to just fashion. If we try to define what fashion is, it really has two primary use cases. Function, which is fulfilled by clothing that allows us to exist within different environments. And then there's also a very important mental and emotional element of fun, where you're able to self-express yourself as an individual, as part of of a cultural identity. So as we continue to incubate our virtual identity and our personality across various social networks, we're really continuing the process that we have started 
since the moment we created our very first username, which, you know, has evolved across different networks, may have started as an email, then moved on to Facebook and so on. So both fashion and NFTs share this one uh, quality that they're both about identity and being able to personalize something. So as there's more spaces for us to, to do so, the very human desire to want to customize objects, I think, will persist and continue to proliferate in the metaverse. If you look at a shirt, for example, that you're wearing, if it is, let's say it's red, it will continue to remain red in the physical world. But digitally, it can take on the role of a canvas and absorb uh, various interactive memories. It can be um, an access key to a different world, both an offline and an online experience. So to me, this is where the most interesting part uh, of Web3 is going to really evolve is when we're able to weave this social cultural appeal into the fabric of virtual assets and then continue to play around with this idea of generative design to birth completely new interactions that are very much um, a surprise to the creator as well as to the customer. Okay, so, so, so I'm packing that further. I say, for example, own a virtual jacket and that say it's got a it's got a generative design capability so mm-hmm. as i hold that virtual jacket and i participate in certain online games or certain online worlds or do certain types of work certain capabilities are added to that jacket it could be access to certain concerts online but also it could be access to certain things in the brick and mortar world right because mm-hmm. I've done certain things in the digital world, I can then transfer that value into maybe access to a table for two at my favorite restaurant, mm-hmm. because that's kind of programmed into that virtual jacket. So is that what you're describing, where these things are just accruing capabilities, uh, accruing an expression of my values, my passion, the culture I want to project? Is that, is that, is that where you think things are heading from a programmability standpoint? I genuinely think the sky is the limit. I think we've just started to scratch the surface of what kind of experiences are actually desirable. I mean, you always begin this journey from copy pasting, experimenting and redoing the past until you start to really discover something new and interesting. The fact that NFTs allow us to compose means like we we get to play around with different combinations of experiences and assets and then see based on the interactions that we're seeing in the real world with real customers, what really resonates with people. So if we think of what types of interactivity we can actually add to assets, it can be any type of nested information from audio files, photos, videos, other rich metadata. You can create, uh, you can redesign the idea of an instant reward, which has been very much enforced with the idea of points everywhere you go. Like you, you get either like a, a custom credit card or a point card to be able to kind of earn rewards. Like how can that experience become less salesy and more interesting, maybe uh, imbued with um, other ideas that are actually more valuable to you rather than just the company that's essentially benefiting from your spending. How can you redesign that relationship and build incentive structures that allow your fans who are the real shareholders of of your brand to also benefit from your success? Well, this is crazy. So, So the design space of this new primitive, it's one of the biggest shifts in history, right? Because you now have this huge galaxy on what's possible so are you seeing anything early which is catching your eye in terms of i I know you've probably got a number of organizations a b testing everything at the moment right and everyone's trying to guess what could be meaningful is there anything you've got conviction on yep this is a specific use case 
or a specific example of where you think this is going to catch on in the market and and unlock a, a new type of value that the consumer has never seen? I think there's one major limitation when it comes to digital assets is that we cannot really see them in their in their full 3D shape. So whenever we talk about an asset, it's usually presented either as a photo or a video on our computer, on our iPhone screen. And the, what I really want to see is this asset floating right in front of my field of vision or incorporated in a virtual environment and seeing it in full, full definition and high res. So for me, the moment that I'm waiting for is when these assets start to become really well incorporated, like seamlessly incorporated into our life, where you're able to suspend disbelief and you almost feel like these assets really are present within your everyday existence. So to me, the moment that I'm waiting for is uh, Apple, Apple headset, because when Apple comes out with a headset, it's going to be one of the only hardware devices on the market that is connected to your iPhone, your iWatch, your spatial audio-enabled headphones, um, your computer, and create a full ecosystem where you're able to browse virtual experiences. And that, to me, is going to be, I think, a huge motivator for more and more people to get into Web3, but as well for everybody who's experimenting with visualization and assets and NFTs and keeps talking about aesthetic to really be able to display it and show it to the customer. I think um, every single industry is going to be transformed by that ability to actually visualize the assets we're talking about instead of just uh, hypothetically talking about the value that they will unlock. Yeah, you know, this is, I've bored my wife about this one for ages. Like I've said to her literally for the last two, three months, Nara, I think it's going to be May. It's going to be May next year where Tim Cook gets on stage and then he unleashes a big occasion, right, where they launch their glasses or <laughs> make that big move that we've all been flirting with. Even here at PatSnap, obviously at we're one of the world leaders at analyzing patent data. So we've done a whole bunch of blogs and stuff, kind of looking at what Apple might release. What do you think? Do you reckon it's going to happen kind of first half of next year where finally Apple, I know the, I mean, the AirPods are cool, fair play, but they've not really had a big meaningful innovation for the last 11 years, really, or well, 10 years. So do you think it's going to happen next year? I think Apple understands the impact that a bad experience with hardware can have on a customer. So they usually take the approach of perfecting the device to make sure that people feel comfortable enough to continue spending more time in it. So I do really think when the headset comes out, it will be another iPhone moment where there will probably be an app store that will allow people to create apps. Then there will be a device that is not only comfortable and seamless, but is also able to give you the opportunity to design for it immediately. So Apple has already released ARKit far in advance for people for developers to be able to um, build that muscle to understand how to actually create for that environment. And slowly through, through, through those small steps, they're getting people ready for that experience. So it's not going to be just revealed out of nowhere and people kind of, you know, will have to adjust. I think the cult that exists around Apple is there for a reason because the design with which they approach their hardware devices makes them incredibly appealing to the customer base, to their customer base. So I think this is going to be the key moment for Apple to be able to latch on to that initial group of developers that they have already nurtured through Apple ARKit, as well as everybody that's awaiting the device. I share your sentiment. I'm, I'm quietly bullish on Apple being the first move and not maybe Facebook or, or Meta sneaking in there with a, a stealth product they had with their Oculus acquisition. Because if, if you do look at Apple, you've got that supercomputer in your pocket, right? Which is your edge device, which gives you all the compute power, thus enabling 
hopefully the glasses to be really thin, good looking and desirable. So they actually already have a head start, don't they? Because of their share and impact in the smartphone market. And also with the AirPods, which could also play a role in that ecosystem of of different devices. So I, I agree with you there. So do you think it's going to be next year? Because I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I'm not sure if you're a betting person, but do you, do you reckon it's going to happen next year? Well, I mean, I hope Tim Cook knows that my birthday is in September, so I'm very much expecting an Apple eyeglass <laughs> reveal in September. No, but but really, it could happen. So if we think about this, the next nine to 10 months could be just the last time, the, the world before Apple Glass. That really could be the time frame that we're going to be living through. And the moment when we step into this phase where you're able to now develop for virtual, uh, for Apple AR seamlessly, considering the framework that they've already built, I think that's just going to be a monumental moment. And NFTs are, of course, grand in the in all the ways that they've been presented right now through marketplaces, but still, this is a 3D object still trapped within the bounds of a 2D screen. So I'm very excited for it to finally break through that fourth wall and really be noticed and um, enjoyed in our real physical environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm bullish on that one from a hardware standpoint, but th- there's a massive elephant in the room here, right? Where the, the big four is winning hearts and minds, right? Because there's an ownership element of Web3, which is completely um, paradoxical to their business model where, right? Where they, they like those big take rates. They like ownership of the IP, permanent provenance. So do you think some of the big four are going to make that leap of faith and say, look, fair play, we have to change and generate revenue with a different model rather than this kind of monopolistic big take rate world we've been living in. Do you you think that change will happen anytime soon? Because even if I look at Meta's video, Zuck talked a lot, but he never mentioned ownership much. If you look at that entire session, he covered all the hardware and the vision, but never obviously said, yep, we're also changing our mentality. We believe in interoperability, transfer of ownership, and and this new future. So do you see one of the big four making that shift? I mean, I don't know if you remember Alta Vista being one of the search engines. Um, I do not believe yeah, most I of us. I'm, I'm old enough. I'm old enough. <laughs> yes, yeah. So we ha- a lot of people have to look up what Alta Vista is to even be able to place it in the timeline of where this <laughs> this existed. But clearly, Google has won the race of search engines. So I do think just because yeah. you right now hold the market share or you have the power to win the hearts and minds and the spending power of your consumers, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to translate that into Web3. Right now, there's a very rebellious energy in the air when it comes to what people actually want out of the future of the internet. And brands can try to adapt to that. But if they do not fully embrace the requests that um, the customers are making, I think they're going to be uh, in for a rude awakening because I do not believe this is about maintaining power. It is about adapting it to the desires of the new fan base. If you think about um, the state in which artists and creatives and content creators has, has have been, you very rarely hear of a starving gallery owner. You usually hear about starving artists. So the power has always been with the distributor, not the creator. And the artist creativity has been definitely underutilized. So if you think of metaverse as a space for creators that has that gives us the power to step in, 
stroll through and just experience the imagination of artists, poets, writers, musicians, this will fuel also the desire for their fans to want to know more about the backstories, the Easter eggs within that content. So being able to move and uh, really inspire the foundation of your fan base will be the catalyst for bigger platforms like Facebook, Apple, and, and so on to really adapt to be able to support that type of migration. So if those if that fan base and that creator find a home and a different platform, then there's really no need for them to come back to Web2 platforms. So I think this is really uh, a defining moment for everybody. I share that sentiment. I just get a bit nervous that the big guys, they might change, but they'll change kicking and screaming, if that makes sense. <laughs> like I still, My trust is a little bit nervous around. And obviously you've, you've seen the big announcement with Meta. I still see them as Facebook. They're still that, okay, fair play. You're going to allocate 10 billion bucks a year as an investment into this space, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably in the majority where we don't completely trust, right, based on on past activity. So, you know, what would be interesting from a hardware standpoint, imagine it, is it, it might be a completely new player. You just never know. But I agree with you, that moat around having a supercomputer in your pocket in the form factor of the iPhone, that does give Apple the chance, right, to really capture this. So I think from that front, it's going to be fascinating in the next 12 months, the way it shakes out. But I'm still a, I'm kind of leaning towards Apple making that big move, but I'm, I'm hoping they change their, their their mindset around ownership and interoperability because that, that's going to be key. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a very new language that started to come to the forefront around interoperability, utility, being able to give assets more power than just being displayed, like beyond beyond them being hosted on a third party server, but actually being very much linked to the original creator to be able to have a life of its own and cross from world to world while still maintaining that connection to the original owner. I think that entire structure, that demand for that to continue to proliferate is going to have to give or push Apple and Facebook to actually adopt that business model. If they don't, I do believe that customers will find another outlet. And even though they may have built an entire army of developers of like, I think like Facebook is hiring 10,000 people in Europe alone. I think just just because you have that massive desire to continue to build out your own platform, if you do not meet the demands, then I do think that people will find another another way. Yeah, I mean, even on the talent side, Nara, you know what I'm seeing? If you actually look into the detail of it, I think there was a, I think Mistin Labs is a, I think it's a layer one protocol, which has raised a bunch of money from some of the, some of the big tier one VCs. That entire team is X kind of Novi, X DM from FB. The entire team, they just left. I'm seeing that a lot in the market. And then when you go on LinkedIn and connect the, the founder and go on their profile, you're like, oh, holy shit, your ex, that big name. Oh, your ex, that big project they were talking about a year ago. But the top, the top six people have just left and created their own company. I think the big guys will have to play ball because it's about talent, right? And execution. And now all that talent is up for leaving in a heartbeat and just doing their own thing if the values and the mission isn't in its purest form factor. So I think that will maybe force some of the big guys to, to play ball from, from just from a talent and an and attraction standpoint. Totally. I mean, if you think about what the function of the salary really is, it is to create such a compelling offer 
for a very talented individual to work for your company, which also prevents them from becoming your direct competitor. You're essentially buying out talent to be able to work for you, to create, to, to build an offer they cannot refuse and give them a life that will be incredibly satisfying, probably in, in a big city. And, uh, that in contrast of a life of an entrepreneur or an early stage founder is very different. So I think now the energy around Web3 is just so creative and you're seeing such a massive migration of some of the most talented people from bank companies to younger developers really ex building experimental solutions that actually sound interesting and have an incredible potential to have uh, breakthrough implications within the tech sector. I think people who are incredibly talented are very much motivated by this energy to just make better solutions. And sometimes the bureaucracy of a bigger company can also be one of the main reasons why people feel really stagnant and are willing to make the jump. So just because you have these Goliath level companies that you know mm. seem um, undefeatable, uh, I do think that the ability for new talent to move faster to a solution is probably the biggest threat to companies like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's by first principles design. The fact that within Web3, everything pretty much is open source. It's basically Lego blocks for everyone to play with, right? By design, you've got talented people saying, look, I don't care if you're a behemoth with an insane balance sheet and kind of big brand. I don't give a shit. I'm leaving. And the top four people are coming with me because we don't believe what you believe. So I actually think it's the first time in history from a kind of internet movement standpoint where all the power is with the creator and, and the builder. So I actually think from a talent standpoint, you might have the big guys saying, God, we've got to play ball because no one wants to join us. I will also add to that list is that it's very, very important to incorporate people that do not necessarily identify as developers within the tech ecosystem, but have a very deep knowledge of what people resonate with, like cultural zeitgeist knowledge, mm -hmm. understanding how do you resonate with somebody to create an NFT that can give them access to an experience that the person actually wants. How can you give them the level of customization and personalization that actually adds to the customer's life, like all of that data and understanding cannot just be solved by technical skills. Of course, you need to have technical savvy to be able to build the solution and deliver it to your target audience. But it, it, uh, Web3, I think, is very much about transitioning legacy institutions into the digital space that is natively built for that customer base. And you definitely need a blend of uh, talent when it comes to that. And seeing the migration of talent from larger companies is that means that there's now um, more opportunity to have those initial conversations to meet somebody and tell them about your idea and be able to build those early teams again. So th there's this is this moment probably for the first time since when we saw social media platforms coming out uh, more than a decade ago now. So this fresh energy, I think, is definitely inspiring for both developers as well as people that have always wanted or, or have seen the tech industry influence their industry from the sidelines and now are able to get in the game. Yeah, that's a key point, right? Because this movement is very much a beautiful cocktail between kind of art and science, right? And you're going to need both disciplines more than ever to figure out meaningful use cases and things which compel the customer and un unlocks new value because someone technical is not going to be close to the customer and close to culture like someone originally from the fashion industry 
or, or a creative in, a, in, say, a particular part of the art market. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned this. When I get decks from early stage teams, because I do some angel work in this space, the team is very much blended how you describe an art, actually, which is really cool. So you'll see one or two yeah. technical folks, so you'll just see folks from a different, say, an art background or a fashion design background. Mm-hmm. Then we're really excited about the technical capabilities of Web3. So you're seeing this beautiful kind of bizarre, really, of talent and cultures working together. I've never actually ever seen it like this, actually, within the tech space, this blended, which again, bodes well for the startup. Yeah, but think about where most of the products were coming from. If we look at Silicon Valley, there is a very specific playbook of how you actually build an app, who needs to be on your team, what type of growth strategies that you're going to be employing to actually make that uh, product come to life. And now if we even look at the example of Artifact, they understand cool. They understand what does it mean to connect with a very sticky culture, how to design a product for them that people want to consume. And that goes way, way, way beyond build. Build becomes more of a function that needs to be seamless, uh, that needs to reduce friction for a customer to be able to interact with an object understanding how to market it, where your audience is, like how to build a campaign that actually lets the person engage with your brand in a meaningful way. I think all of that goes uh, so far beyond just making an app or even deciding whether an app is the right way. Should it be a Web2 solution? Do you even need an app whatsoever? So I think those questions need to be answered by not just the CTO, but also the CMO. And the CEO needs to understand both the technical stack or at least the capabilities of the technical stack, as well as the resonance they want to create within an ecosystem beyond the the tech. I completely agree with that. If you look at it, in time, the build part will become more democratized and more deflationary in time, right, by design. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I share your sentiment. I do see maybe in four or five years, all the picks and shovels are pretty much there. Connecting them together is still a technical challenge, but kind of pretty much out of the box in many cases. And it actually will be the creatives and the people who are very much close to culture and close to the customer who probably will end up creating the most compelling value propositions, especially in the kind of the the digital fashion space. That's my guess, but I could be completely wrong. Obviously, you would know thousand x more than me in this space but would you say that's where it's potentially kind of steering towards where it is the creatives who really end up shaping leading the charge in the next three four years and within the kind of digital fashion collectible art space is that is that fair to say yeah, I mean, I am a huge believer that it's the taste makers that are going to be shaping the next generation of really sticky uh, technical products. But I actually would love to ask you as to why you think so as well, because from from a perspective of, of an investor, I think a lot of people have been looking for strong tech teams to be able to invest in a product that will be able to reach the um, reach success. But I think now there's a bit of a shift towards a product that can actually reach the right customer and being able to uh, assemble a team that can build it almost comes secondary, at least that's from what I'm seeing. But I'd be curious to actually ask you that question as well. Yeah, really good question. The reason why I'm guessing um, it would trend towards that way in four to five years, because that's happened in Web2. At the moment, to be fair with you, I'm looking for the technical chops in the team because we're so super early, right? With the layer ones, layer twos, interoperability, scalability, God, even security sometimes with some of the protocols. So at the moment, to be fair with you, I'm really trying to unpack 
are the technical chops and capability there. That's in 2021, right? And probably next year and, and the following year. But reason why I think in three, four years, it leans towards the more creative soul and someone who's close to culture is, and I can link this to Web2. In Web2 now, I'm seeing so many awesome teams building amazing product and they're kind of connecting different libraries together. And you might have a founding team who are not as technically deep as a Web2 team, Web2 team would have been maybe even five years ago because the tech has matured, a lot of it's out of the box, and it's really trying to understand the customer. So I think that same kind of technical curve will happen within Web3. Actually, probably even faster and even more exacerbated, because by designing Web3, everything's open anyway. Mm-hmm, exactly. All the Lego blocks are public. You can stitch them together. So actually, a 1,000x that compared to Web2. Because some things in Web 2 are still closed loop and proprietary, so you can't get access to Lego blocks. In Web 3, it's all open by design. So there could be by 2027, you've got chief exec, co-founder, non-technical chops, and they've got a decent technical team, but leading the charge is a creative or someone who's non-technical. That's my guess. I could be completely wrong, but that's where I think the trend, the ship is steering towards. Yeah, totally. I also think that the one position I'm also very interested in is uh, economics architecture and the business model, because the subscriptions have been very much popularized in the Web2 era. But if you think of the three main types of businesses that are being built right now, specifically, if I were to look at digital fashion assets, there is um, aggregators of virtual assets, almost like version two of an e-commerce store that still doesn't really offer true ownership of any goods, sometimes even no interaction between the designer and the consumer. There is few options for customization. So, so, so much room for improvement and really embodying everything Web3 can can offer within that business model. There is um, emergence of virtual third places where people can go to learn, work, and play. Those are the three the three main pillars. I think even within that business model, there's still some challenges with interoperability, especially when it comes to other marketplaces and playing nice with your competitors and still also a few options for customization. And the most popular one, I think that we're seeing right now uh, creating the most uh, buzz is crypto art marketplaces. And they're also, again, look just like e-commerce sites and they are just platforms for verification of artworks. And this is where the idea of ownership and utility are being experimented in the most. So being going beyond just records of digital receipts, but uh, platforms like Async Art, for example, like adding a lot more uh, interactivity to the assets and giving them opportunities to really evolve and change over time. So I think that is going to be the path where all three of these verticals are going to start to cross over and collaborate where you'll see new business models emerge beyond just the subscriptions that we're so familiar with. Yeah, it's definitely sadly, not sadly, just human nature. We're at that skeuomorphic phase where it's just a Web 2 idea expressed with some Web 3 DNA. But I think the more this community builds, as you mentioned earlier, it's going to be native Web 3 use cases, things that we just can't even imagine. But will be very real and we'll probably be probably be used to it in three, four years, right? But we can't imagine it now sitting here in, in Christmas 2021. I think there's one project which is interesting. And I started, God, I actually even dreamt about this project because I consumed the information before I went to bed. So it's just in my mind. There's a project called Loot. I don't know if you've heard of Loot. Of course. <laughs> yeah, so so Loot was interesting because it 
it seems like you can own the original canonical of a story, which is obviously in the form factor of an NFT, but how that evolves and how that builds, that was crazy, right? Because then you can have people create their own stories, build their own narratives, create their own capabilities within that original canonical. So where that will go, Lord knows, because at the moment it's so opaque. And I went on their website the other day. Honestly, I didn't understand half the stuff I was reading, but I was like, wow, this similar to how people freaked out about Airbnb back in the day, but they thought, what? Stay in someone's house. They could like attack me or something. It was such an alien thing. Same thing with loot. I think people can't really imagine on, oh, who would build on there? And why would people do that? I think it's projects like that, which I think might end up unlocking a whole new world. Actually, maybe you can educate our audience in terms of where do you think, actually, firstly, what is loot? You can describe it so much more better than me. Where do you think something like loot will potentially head in in your opinion, Nara? Yeah, I think Loot still uses the fundamental structure of what NFTs can offer. However, it gives you, the consumer or the fan, the chance to be able to contribute to the project. So this kind of fundamentally changes the role of the author, of somebody who created a project, of somebody who gives you the stimulus or the ability to continue the journey of something. If you look at gaming ecosystems, that happens in games all the time. However, games are closed environments where everything that they're designing in terms of assets and how payment is structured is all circulating within the game. But there's always an army of super fans that always create third-party stores or plugins to be able to make the game more richer, that advances gameplay, that creates narratives and backstories. And most of the time they found themselves on the outside of that experience. So that now there's more companies recognizing that these players are actually the most valuable contributors to the game because they spend the most amount of time they're advocating subgroups and communities that actually continue to popularize the game and make it relevant for for people so incorporating their uh, ingenuity and their creativity and and their thinking into this only enriches the project and continues to grow it in value so loot i think embraces that idea that you can create the stimulus but if your audience is able to build on top of your project and create sub communities and niche groups that proliferate and move it forward then you become you everybody is able to benefit through that process so even though most NFTs uh, have been an incredible pathway for, for visual artists who have uh, a lot of the times all, not all, but a lot of them learn from each other's tutorials. And there's a lot of similar similarities in how content actually looks. Loot kind of completely strips away the visual aspect of the uh, of the NFT and gives you words instead. So you're able to come up with um, a response to basically several vocabulary words that represent different assets from a game to give you the chance to illustrate those. So it completely changes the flow and the direction of the conversation while still utilizing NFT as a structure. I mean, what you described there is that unlimited creative freedom, but also with the right incentive structure, right? Because you get to really generally participate in the creative process, but most importantly as well, you get to have ownership, right? Where you actually really feel part of it so yes so that's definitely one is there any other projects similar to loot which you think wow this is non-skeuomorphic this is native this is going to be amazing is there anything you can kind of tease our audience with with projects which are similar to loot in terms of being truly unique I don't think this is a small project, but I think Artblocks is one of the best projects that you can study to understand generative design as well. Um, I think 
they are not only pushing the boundaries of what's possible to create using technology, but also how can you use very, very simple visuals to be able to communicate a message that can still sell for very high price. So a lot of the times I think people don't exactly know how to make an NFT valuable. And I think it is that relationship between the asset, the technical stack, as well as the community and the culture you're trying to cultivate, that uh, those three pillars is what makes an NFT valuable. So as you uh, start to think of NFTs as a strategy for your business or what you want, what you're trying to create, I think it's important to understand why specific projects succeed and what did they do right and or different from others that is making them interesting. There's also, um, you cannot talk about Web3 without DAOs. I think there's a very big play on trying to create more operational structures that do not uh, that are not centralized, that uh, actually use a distributed structure uh, between stakeholders within the community. I think it is a big dream to make DAOs functional. However, um, the tools that are going to come out to actually support activity of a DAO are just now starting to develop. So right now is a very good time to get into that and start to study them. Um, There's a really great website called Forefront.news where you can learn more about social tokens, DAOs, and um, different experience within that space. So I'd highly recommend anybody interested in that to check check it out. Anara, I mean, we could probably talk for hours around this whole Web3 ecosystem. I think we could. (laughs) As part one, we've covered loads, but I just want to say a massive thank you today. But before you leave us, a little bit about your your business, where people can find you to learn more. Please, uh, over to you. Yeah, I am absolutely fascinated everything that has to do with digital fashion. So if you're curious at all about the role of fabric, digital textures in the future, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under NRAXR. Uh, the business that I'm working on very much is trying to redesign uh, the gamification structure of creation of assets. So Armoire is a platform for collaborative discovery and gamified creation of generative digital materials. They can be consumed as standalone art as well as uh, applied to other virtual goods. So I'm very excited to continue to explore the boundaries of how textures can grow, breed, and change over time. So if this sounds like an interesting project to you, please feel free to reach out and share some ideas with me. Well, cheers, Nara, and hopefully we can have part two in maybe July or August next year and see where the lay of the land is. I would love that. Thank you so much, Ray, for having me. Thanks, Nara. And there you have it, everyone, for today's episode with Anara Nazarova. If you enjoyed today's episode, then hit that subscribe button. If you love today's episode, then share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would benefit from listening to today's podcast. Again, for listening to today's episode, you can grab a free copy of Pat Snap's number one Amazon best-selling ebook, The Definitive Guide to Connected Innovation Intelligence, where in this ebook we explore what connected innovation intelligence is, who's it for, and how the world's disruptors are using it to win in hyper-competitive markets. To grab a free copy of that ebook, you can find it in the show notes section of this podcast or head over to patsnap.com to download it for free today. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We'll be back next week with another one. Continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious. Stay curious.